because both of you are older than me, um, do you have any advice that you would offer me as a younger person than you two who are both older than me? Starting with Ludo. Oh, advice. I, I don't feel comfortable sharing advice with, with anyone about anything, really. Yeah, me neither. Well, is, is is that just a humility, like uh, being humble and kind of going like, how, like just because I'm older, I don't necessarily like know more just by virtue of being older? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I don't think wisdom has anything to do with age. I think you know one, one does gain wisdom with age because you make mistakes and and hopefully you learn from those mistakes. But it's weird to to arbitrarily dish out advice uh, given. With no context, I think doesn't make any sense. Like if you came yeah, to me well, with what yeah. the fuck, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was trying to think of something which was not not difficult in a sense of it's a difficult conversation and we might not be the right voices to speak about it. More difficult as in it it, it relies on something which isn't necessarily true, but people might believe, which is i.e. like the older you are, the wiser you are. And so it's it's essentially me trying to sort of throw a curveball to begin with, while rather than do uh, like a Blue Peter intro <laughs> and say like what we've got coming up on the show, whilst intermittently petting a dog. I mean, I'd rather you do that, to be honest. What? Well, I, I mean, I it would be really awkward now for me to go and get the dog. I mean, I do we do have a dog, not for like not with like podcast money or well, we don't have any money, but it's <laughs> not from the podcast. We have we have a dog anyway. It's just like the dog will probably be somewhere else. Okay. And I mean, she she's poorly at the moment because I, I don't know what from. It might have been either because she was out without a coat walking out or um, it was probably what happened or actually happened is my mum my came back and said that the dog, Bo, had, uh, as soon as they left the house, she was pulling mum towards something which she really wanted and she literally just ate, ate a load of leaves and shit. <laughs> uh, so she made herself poorly by eating shit, and so and leaves. I mean that that that's some good advice, I'd guess. Don't eat shit. Don't eat shit mixed with leaves, especially mixed with leaves. It, 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 it doesn't it doesn't offer the right kind of fibre. I don't think just like dead leaves, especially dead leaves. <laughs> and we're not very good at digesting fibrous plants anyway. Uh, but we're not. Uh, no, I've I found this in my in my twenty seven years on the planet. So that's uh, that can be my my piece of advice. Well, I think that's kind of, I don't know, there is a degree of inevitability of particularly something like like a Western diet not actually fitting with, I don't know, I want to say like our natural metabolism, although that's probably changed over thousands of years. But like it's, it's for example, it's weird that Northern Europeans, you know, in the world scape, it's weird that we drink milk, really. We're sort of in the minority and it's kind of like we've had to, we're not had to in terms of like we must, but the mutation of lactose tolerance involved in northern europeans just to be able to drink milk in a way that we sort of gave ourselves a selective condition just because we insisted on select of insisted on drinking milk well it's good stuff there's a, there's a lot of a lot of nutrients in that uh so yeah i mean i i still love milk and i still love cheese although obviously the point of milk for from cows is it's it's for cows so i mean i don't know i don't actually know like how like how detrimental milk is sort of hormonally in terms of the that balance but like i i know that like that's something that people throw about hmm. are you are you boys but, both milk drinkers still oh me 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 a big milk drinker uh i can take it or leave it i mean 
I eat. Uh, I do like cheese. I love my cheese. I'm a big. I'm a big, big cheeseman. Um, I'm really excited because Christmas is coming up, and in in my house that means we do what I like to call the cheese run, which is we uh, we we go to the supermarket and we get all the different types of cheese because um, for some reason all year round we just eat cheddar. Uh, don't really diversify, but when Christmas comes around, oh man. We've got it all. I'm talking Wednesday on cram, cram, uh, Cranberry. I'm talking Blue Stilton. I'm talking Garlic Rule or Roulet. I forget which. I forget which one it is. That sounds almost identical to our family selection of cheeses, yeah. like, which is a Garlic Rule. And I love Garlic Rule. It's yeah, my like, favourite. You can get things like chili cheddars and yeah, like Wednesday on uh, Cranberry, that kind of thing. We sometimes some might get a brie. Uh, I mean, I. Ludo, this might sound a bit, uh, sort of jumped the gun straight to this, you know, not even five minutes in, but because you are from Italy, yeah. at least, you know, you're born, born in Italy, your parents are both Italian, and, you know, even though that you've lived around places, you've, you've still kept up, you know, that identity. Mm. So I don't know, I don't know how much you, you know, would recognise from, like, our Christmases, like, you could probably guess, like, from things like Peep Show, what a British Christmas involves, but is there anything that, like... Because I don't know much about Italian Christmases other than like panettone being like a the traditional thing to make and give around then, and possibly that the the big Christmas dinner happens on Christmas Eve. Have I got that right? That is uh, well, yeah. To, we we do we do both. We do we do a big big dinner on Christmas Eve and then a big lunch on on Christmas Day. Uh, so uh, yeah, we do we do we don't skimp out. We we don't actually best, make best a lot. Ones. A lot of people don't don't make panettone. People, uh, people tend to just buy it because it's really, okay. it's really hard to make. But because it's, it's not quite bread and it's not quite cake. Yeah, exactly. It's it's somewhere in between. Um, my sister has actually just set up a little uh, a little panettone business, so she is she's making panettones next door in the kitchen. Uh, so she's oh, wow. yeah, she's she's exporting them. Uh, give give her a little plug here. Um, we might as well. But we don't really. <laughs> Maybe we could get. I mean, she probably has more money in so in terms of profits than we do, so she might be able to sponsor us, and so that will work out quite nicely. Uh, yeah, I will. I'll come back with a jingle next week that you can put at the head of the podcast. Uh, uh, excuse me. I think I think you'll find that it's Tom and I that'll do the jingles. So they, they do. Your sister could do. I mean, she might be really good at writing jingles, but until we have evidence of this, she does the money. We do the jingles. Okay. Fair enough. I mean, I, I say that I say that with the authority of the producer, which I'm not the producer. Um, okay, I'll run it by the producer, and then I'll get back to you. Then, if it goes ahead, come up with like maybe a few jingles just to see if we we trust you, because obviously you're going to be involved in this. Is sort of the arbiter of it. That arbiter will, of what? Hopefully, well, this deal. <laughs> you're sort of overseeing. You're overseeing the deal. You're kind of like a sort of a legal eagle over this and kind of negotiating the terms. And if, if someone says don't shoot the messengers, like, well, the messengers is the messengers' idea to have the jingle and everything. Anyway, <laughs> um, that's that sponsorship, which I don't think will happen till for a good few episodes down the line. But apart from the buying a panettone, oh yeah, the, um, what else? The slight differences. What else? Yeah, is what, different? El- what else? Different. So we do Chris- yeah. we, we do presents on uh, on Christmas Eve, traditionally, because uh, uh, and then everyone goes to mass. Uh, because of the the big Catholic contingent, uh, what else? Yeah, we 
we we the the the, the main the main event still will be a a big hunk of roasted meat. Uh, so we're we're not that different in in that regard to to the Brits. What would what would be the central meat? Uh, it could because be for a long time. It could be could be lamb. Could be beef. Yeah, could be. There's no, there's not an, an orthodoxy there particularly, but you know, it, it, in Italian meals, you always have a uh, you always have a primo, like a, a first dish, and then a secondo, which is a, a well, literally second dish, uh, and the primo but... will be like a pasta dish, and we will still have that. So it's like that, and then a roast. Do you then still have aperitivo? Uh, no, you have well, you have uh, um, you have starters, which is. Um, um, antipasti. A- oh, yeah, aperitivo is like a. Yeah, that's that's just that's not a that's not a festive thing particularly. That's just like uh, that's something that you that's a, a drink and some snacks that you have before before dinner. Oh yeah, no, no, I was to say. Oh yeah, no, it's not like necessarily a festive thing. But I was wondering if you like even on a Christmas dinner, would you still add the like the pre-dinner drinks and snacks? Yeah, I guess. Then the... I guess some families would. Some some would depends depends on how big and fancy the affair is i suppose well i think it's a it's more of a uk and us thing i think to have turkey i mean i think for a long time the brits tended to have a goose or like like a chicken or a goose or maybe even like uh, a joint of beef and i think the americans uh, being as they are and being how the special relationship worked in the 80s i think they sort of peddled turkey because it was probably bigger um that has a history of being farmed in the winter for its high tryptophan content. And it was sort of cheaper just based on how the Americans were battery farming it. So something like that came together to mean that turkey became traditional for Brits. But quite recently, I think, I don't know if anyone is able to correct me on that. Do you, do you think Reagan Tom, you want... was bringing them over himself just uh, just in a big hold all? One at a time. <laughs> he said, well, Maybe. here's uh, some turkey for you uh, Brits. <laughs> <laughs> and then he, then he couldn't remember what he was going to say because he, yeah, he Margaret, like fucking... Margaret, <laughs> Margaret, here's a turkey for you, Mister Gorbachev. I brought you a turkey. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Yeah, turkey. I'm not a fan of turkey as a meat. I'm, I'm really not a fan. I, I wouldn't have it uh, any other time of the year. Like if someone said, "Oh, do you want a turkey sandwich?" I'm not fussed. I think it's a bit dry, and yet infuriatingly every year without fail my family insists on getting a turkey even though i'll ask all of my family one by one do you like turkey and they'll be like no but every year we get a turkey um just something in the air that makes makes people crave turkey even if they hate it it. yeah it's well there's 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 an amazing scene in the royal family where a similar thing happens where um again all the characters one by one are sort of saying i don't really like turkey and then uh Barbara, the mum sort of the family sort of says, "Well, if you want, um, I won't get I won't get turkey this year. You know, I'll get something else." And then all the family suddenly go, "Oh no, you got to get a turkey!" So it is it perfectly captures that um, yeah the British tradition. Um, I mean, it's not bad. I don't, well, it, I don't hate turkey. I'll eat it, but I mean, I'd I'd much rather have like a nice steak or a uh, a pork belly or something. But we do it. I think we do it more for tradition in my house. My my house is very much like you know this is what christmas dinner is and this is what it's been for the past thousand years and what it's gonna be for the next thousand <laughs> well our our household sort of changed things up just because not as in like for the world as in just for ourselves like come on 
but we we do things slightly differently in that we tend to have like a christmas dinner we tend to go for like not necessarily a whole chicken but we might go for like sort of chicken pieces uh like reasonably big like chicken breasts or something with like a skin on and we we tend to have that on christmas eve and my sister or one of my sisters makes the majority of the roast stuff just because she the thing that she nailed in cooking amongst like doing so many nice baked goods is she's really good at making roasts and so she'll do like she obviously will do the chicken but then she'll do like roasted carrots with like honey and thyme and also some parsnips and of a similar ilk there'll be obviously roast potatoes there'll be mashed potato if you don't like roast potatoes there'll be like red cabbage which is cooked in like uh, i think it's something like apple cider vinegar or sort of like slightly pickled in that regard there'll be like sprouts cooked in with bacon and chestnuts there'll be crispy kale with garlic and and some other bits but the point being like christmas eve means that that day is dedicated to doing the dinner rather than on christmas which is presents and like bucks in the morning and then doing a lunch within the you know with a reduced time because you've spent half the morning doing presents and other christmas things so christmas eve is purely you just funnel in all the dinner stuff then and then christmas day is we make curry just because that again that's a nice lunch and it's still an occasion but it's significantly less stress on christmas day you can just chuck everything in a pot and then just leave that even like leftover turkey just chuck that in a pot it's interesting that because I that's the same with my family except one day further along. So we won't eat anything special for Christmas Eve, but then for Christmas Day, well, we spend Christmas Eve preparing the meal for the next day so everything's ready to go. And then on Christmas Day, we do the massive Christmas lunch, you know, the sort of traditional Christmas dinner. And then Boxing Day, we do the turkey curry. Yeah, I think that's some in terms of modern traditions, if you will. The the turkey curry seems to fall more on like Boxing Day. Just mm. yeah, because again, because that just happens to be the day after you know you've, that you've got the turkey that you might not have finished. Uh, yeah, usually that's uh, the case. I we'd, we I mean we have um, so it's it's me, my parents, and my sister, and then my dad's brother and sister. So my aunt and uncle come round. So there's six of us. But yeah, it's rare that we finish anything. We, there's a lot left over, but it works out well because you just sort of basically then don't have tea because you've eaten so much, so you can just nibble at stuff. I mean, speak for yourself, I'll probably end up eating something. I mean, not necessarily because I'm hungry, but because it's there. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, have I... I, I, yeah, I get that impulse too. I can't, I can't be around food without eating it. I'm the same. I could never be a chef or anything. <laughs> I, um, I got into the habit of actually doing meal planning and prepping i always thought it was like, oh, it's boring but then it's but then there's a point where you're going to go okay well to make the working week even better like having loads of lunches ready is just that it, it just it kind of makes your week if you know you've got some nice things that you, you can bring into work i've also had like it's probably from being off gluten for most of my life and also being off dairy for a fair amount that my school lunch boxes often look kind of weird and so it's often sort of like a discussion point and so i've, always, I've had this sort of weird insecurity about what food I make and eat. Like, I'm happy, obviously on my own, it's absolutely fine, but I've only just sort of got the confidence to cook for other people. But anyway, the, the point of that being that I've only recently been like, I'm going to bring my own food into work and see what people make of it. And obviously people are normally like, oh, that looks nice. And then just thinking about something else, probably. But I got into the habit of cooking about five different dinners or five different lunches, or, you know, generic meals for the week on a Sunday for two reasons. Firstly, it means I do all the cooking for the week on one day. 
And secondly, it means that if there are 10 portions out across the hob, I cannot eat them all through greedy pickings. Like, the way I stop myself, like, eating all of what's in front of me is having so much that it's impossible to eat. <laughs> I'd be careful with that, though, because what if, like, one day you're feeling really bold and you do manage to eat it all? <laughs> and then it's like, what's the solution then? Do you just cook even more? Double down. Um, it's the, it's the down. martingale gotta, method. That's it. You gotta, you know, that's it. You've gotta just double the double your portions. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a point at which um, the ghrelin levels in my body will change. Like, I'm not I'm not a beast. Like, I will eventually feel full, and also there'll be a degree of even if I eat really quickly, which I have a tendency to do then there'll be a point where it just becomes a brick and I'm like, what have I done? So I feel like experientially there's been enough times where I know the feelings of like, like I'm now full. I have a lot of hatred for myself here and there's a lot of regret and I can't really move. And everyone else has seen what's happened normally because I've been eating for so long. It doesn't, you know, if it's in like a shared space and I've been cooking that people clearly see that I've, I've eaten a lot of fucking food. So it's, it, it it's embarrassing. It's, it's detrimental, really. So I feel like I kind of I'm familiar with these pitfalls of feeling full. So I don't think I can overcome them anytime soon. I uh, when I used to work in uh, back in like 2018, when I used to work it well, end of 2018, it's 2019. I um, excuse me, yawn. Are you bored, Tom? No, no, I'm just uh, <laughs> tired. <laughs> um, I, I've only been awake for like an hour, so um, I because. Uh, uh, I, I worked sort of not mega far from Stoke, uh, Stoke-on-Trent, and like a few people that worked at the call centre were li- actually lived there. There was a guy who used to do like an oatcake run, so he'd um, he'd take everyone's orders on the Thursday, and then every Friday he'd um, he'd stop at like this oatcake restaurant and and pick up everyone's orders and bring them to work, and you gave him the money. It's quite nice actually, but um, and the food was nice as well, but. Uh, I I used to get this um what was like called the ultimate oat cake. Um and it was like I never managed to finish it. Um I mean do you, are you boys both familiar with oat cakes or do I need to explain? Are they like they're because the, there's different types of oat cakes. Are they, are they like Staffordshire oat cakes? Is it those ones? Ye- yes, I'm sure it'll be those. So like yeah, a big like, sort they're, they're of... like so a what big is, pancake so type this... thing. Exactly. Yeah. So, I was gonna say, what is what is this ration era treat that you're talking about? <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, it's yeah, it's a traditionally sort of staff for anyone who doesn't know. Yeah, it's a traditionally sort of like Staffordshire Stoke uh, thing. It's basically like a big pancake, but it tastes a bit different than a pancake. But it's that consistency. I think, is, it, and, is it made uh, with some kind of um, animal fat? Is it like lard or something rather than butter? I would imagine so because it does taste totally different than a pancake. But it's like, yeah, yeah it's this—I uh, don't know what you call it—this battered disc. Uh, but oat cakes are mega; they're really nice. Um, and traditionally, what you do is um, you 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 wrap the oat cake up like a like a tortilla or something, uh, and um, have a filling in it. So the simplest one and one that's really traditional is just like grated cheese, uh, grated cheese and baked beans, and then wrap it in an oat cake. Um, but then you can also like have, um, you know, bacon and sausage and egg and an oat cake. But the ultimate oat cake was actually just three oat cakes not rolled up. Rather, the three oat cakes were like the, uh, 
the covering. They were sort of the burger bun, if you will, that held everything together. And in the ultimate oat cake, it had like, it was something crazy like five rashes of bacon, five sausages, two fried eggs, uh, two fried tomatoes, baked beans. And you had like four black pudding. Um, and it was covered in grated cheese. And then it was all of that on, on two levels because it was oat cake filling, middle oat cake filling, and then top oat cake. Um, I wasn't sold on oat cakes until you told me about the ultimate oat cake. Because as soon as you were saying like, oh, it's like a pancake. It's like a pancake, but different. <laughs> How lovely. You just you have a pancake. And I was I was not sold as like as something that's worthwhile. I mean, like now you mentioned it's, it's a whole like filling thing, like a sandwich. It's It sounds really nice. It's like... For me, if I heard this, like, oh, would you like a flapjack? Because like, I'll, I'll still have a flapjack, but it's kind of like, don't... It's it's sort of oats and sugar, from what I understand. I don't know, I, I just have a... I could go on a tirade about these sorts of... Uh, sort of Victorian-era British puds or things, which... Puds! Kind of like, <laughs> which make it... Which make do, you mean, it do you mean puds? What did I say? Puds! <laughs> is this what is, is this just as it just turned into a north versus south podcast we've, it sometimes we've been does in, yeah we've been in danger of it just becoming that but i think we always hold ourselves back but now that we're talking about I like mean, which... cuisine cuisine's obviously going to stoke some fires for people from different places <laughs> I, I would imagine so I mean... uh, sorry i want to go back to this ultimate oat cake here um how much um that's a, that's a lot of fillings like you could you could I don't know if you were to have that somewhere, that would be that'd be a massive English breakfast, basically. So yeah, how, how it, much how much was one of those? Uh, uh, how much did it cost? Yeah, how much did it cost? It, Sorry, it was like seven quid. Wow, that's that's a bargain, man. Like, yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was you good. get all that I stuff mean, in a greasy spoon. Probably a bit, be a bit more than seven quid. Yeah, yeah. So I used to get that at a strawberry milkshake, and nice. um, yeah, I I only I think the most I ever ate of it was like half of it but yeah it was it was brutal it was it was just a sight to <laughs> behold like it was worth getting it just to open the carton and just see it inside because it was like gigantic and, and what did you like, do with the other half um i'd sort of pick at it for the rest of the day and then i'd end up chucking it oh man that's you rough cretin. You yeah cretin. so uh <laughs> I, I i i i did stop buying eventually i got to the point where i was like uh yeah i'm not buying this again because i'm a terrible person so i just end up chucking most of it I mean that that's just the like the not I was going to say paternal I'm not dad but that that kind of the overarching figure of going oh don't you know don't waste food you know waste not want not. yeah it's not like I mean me. if, I mean if, if if I were in the room I'd I'd probably go like you know waste not want not and even if it was cold I probably can't eat it I'd still have a go I think that I do have a reputation as thing of a human trash can I'm, yeah, I'm no, more it, hands it, off it, Tom I would just say I would say the words tisk tisk. Tisk or at a, at a boy. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's fine. It's not like me. And like, I, I didn't do it all the time. I think, I, I think in my entire like year of working there or 11 months, uh, I think I only had like the ultimate oat cake like three or four times. So, uh, okay, well, well, we'll forgive you that. Uh, yeah, I hope you can because I don't usually do that. I don't usually waste Sa- Sam, the, the scraps might still be there if you want to go check it out. Okay. Yeah, I'll tell you where the call, I mean, not- I'll tell you where the call center <laughs> is so you can go find it. Okay, I mean, I have I've been to Crew once, um, and then I think it, it was very much like a train station. 
it was almost like a video game because there was a train station I had access to, and then Tom drove us to a pub, and then that. So there was just sort of two regions. It wasn't there wasn't like the connecting roads or anything. There's just sort of loading screens. So I don't really understand. Well, it yeah, we we I had to take you to the pub because we had to go do a mission there because we hadn't unlocked. Uh, we didn't unlock uh, the third island, which in this case is Nantwich Road and Wisterson <laughs> and beyond. And then, the you third, get, yeah, then so you're getting into Nantwich, where all the expensive shit is. Uh, yeah, uh, well, I very deliberately drove you uh, to a certain pub, though. It was because, I mean, it was weird because it was a pub I'd never been in. But the point was, was that I didn't want uh, us to go and have a drink. So when you when you come to the station top, which I think is where we met, um, you can either go left, which takes you onto what's called Nantwich Road, which is like, basically, it's a long road of nothing but like, uh, uh, well, basically, it's takeaways, uh, restaurants. A new thing they've started building is there's a load of dessert places now. These places that do just desserts. Um, what else is on there? Uh, I think there's like, there's one music shop like that sells musical instruments. I think there's a butcher's, but it's mostly just takeaways and... Uh, I think there's a few bookies. There's like gambling places. Uh, it's it's not a nice road, but there's like three pubs on there, and I I I wouldn't even go in. I wouldn't feel safe going into any of them. Um, it's just super fucking dodgy. So when Sam came up, I was like, I've got my car, so let's. I'll take you to a pub that's basically like a student. It's basically a pub that was built on like a. It's built on like an urban clearway on like a bypass, so it's in a really weird place. But it's next. It's a pub that's next to a petrol station, and a co-op, and basically a uni accommodation, uh, and a roundabout, and that's it. You know, it's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. But it's basically just outside my village, uh, which is right next to Crew. So what I did was I drove Sam there, and we went for a quiet drink in there because I was like, you know, I was like, I'm not fucking going into any. I'm not gonna get. I'm not about to get glassed. Uh, in a pub in crew, but it was also more because I didn't want Sam to have a bad experience there. Actually, something that did occur to me because we were talking about you know food and dining, if you were, and something which I've, I've just kind of remembered is that I guess something you could say about the three of us is we all we do like cooking, unless one of you has suddenly gone off cooking. Would that be correct to say that we all like cooking? I, I am a big fan of cooking. Yes, big yeah. time cookman. This might be this might sound like something of an icebreaker of MasterChef, which it, it absolutely is. But uh, starting with you, Ludo, is there like a moment or like a thing that kind of happened, or just like uh, general things are happening like in growing up that kind of got you into cooking? Well, I mean, my mum, my mum is an incredible cook. Um, I can I can attest to that. She <laughs> uh, and she was also I think she was always. She never really put any responsibility on us to cook. Uh, I think partly, partly because she enjoyed doing it herself, and partly because she she wanted us to do our homework. Um, and basically, it meant that I I had very very basic cooking knowledge leaving home. Uh, go to to go to uni, and then I guess just purely out of necessity when I was at uni, you know, I, I really like eating really good food and, you know, there's, there's not that many places you can eat good food when you're a student really. And so yeah. it, it just, I just thought, okay, well, I'll just have to make my own good food. Uh, so 
you know, I started out with really basic stuff. Uh, you know, obviously I knew how to make a bowl of pasta and things and, and make a basic pasta sauce and, and all that. Um, but then for the rest, I just started trying stuff out. I think it's always been a very, what, what I like about it is I, I don't like, like I might do with other, other skills that I practice. I don't think that, you know, I like, I like to put the effort in, but I don't think that I'm conditioned by the results so much. So like, if I, if I spend a long time making a, making a meal and it turns out to be rubbish for for whatever reason you know i've messed up the cooking somehow i don't get angry at myself i don't like i don't feel that i failed as a person because i i failed at making this dish because there are plenty of other dishes that i can make that i know are good and also i can try again uh whereas that's a very nice thing to say actually i felt that was very well observed in terms of like i've I've never really thought about that before but yeah it or rather you speaking on that fact that certain other skills, as you say, have the capacity to like make you feel like a failure if they don't turn out how you hope. Mm. Yeah, but yeah, so I think I, that's you, what I like about it. It's very, it's very low stakes for me, uh, but but it can still it can still have really enjoyable results, and and I genuinely enjoy the process as well. I find it find it quite therapeutic in that you know you you do to to make something properly, you do really have to concentrate on what you're doing. Um, and so it means that you can't be stressing about other stuff while you're doing it. You do kind of have to be a bit more mindful. It does, like, once you get started, I mean, never mind, like, food shopping is pretty hellish, I think. And unless you get it, like, delivered. And sometimes washing up can be a bit hellish, although I feel like I've grown to like it now. I, I but, yeah, love washing you're... up, I have to say. I'm, I'm, I'm a big, I, big I, fan. I used, to, I used to really detest it, but then now, obviously, that doesn't make me many friends. But there's a point... <laughs> There's a point at which you kind of yeah, growing up and kind of having to do it, or or like if someone cooks for you, you can wash up like just as a sort of like a default thing. If like they've done one part of it, you could do the other. That's what I usually but do. He, uh, yeah. uh, this came up in a conversation with uh, with me and Ludo off off the podcast, but we uh, we talked about when you stay at someone's house, the uh, the rules around doing the washing up. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I always wash up. Well, we do it together. I think uh, most of the time. So yeah, but. Uh, Wash it up's all right. I see you, Ludo. Ludo, you talking about your experiences in like how you got into cooking? Is I think that there might be quite. I think I always think there's there's probably some sort of like magical thing that that different people go through, and I guess it's but possibly that the story of like learning a bit to cook and then like kind of really having to forge your own path at uni is is quite a common story. Possibly not not to not to like devalue the experience, but I think it's quite nice that that. You know, there's sort of an element of a ubiquitous element of that, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I think we, you know, I mean, for for people who are fortunate enough to grow up in a household where uh, one parent or both parents like to cook and and do so regularly and uh, kind of that that that's kind of their job sometimes, then then yeah, I think that that will be common. But you'll have plenty of people who have to be out of necessity self-sufficient before before they go to uni um so yeah i have i had the luxury let's say of, of of having to pick up cooking or only once once i yeah that's true yeah once i, mean, I had to uh once i had to cook for myself yeah i guess like we, it's not like we were looking after a parent who was like who couldn't cook yeah exactly like, for, for... yeah that's it's a good point i think there's a certain luxury i think 
that I I say I'm very vocal about. I'm not like a campaigner for, but something I I often try and bring up in terms of like privilege in terms of growing up in a more privileged background, you know, you know, whether it's affluence or being in an area which is more affluent anyway, so your schooling system might be slightly better, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, there, there is a privilege in having parents who can cook a variety of things will also be able to take you to different restaurants mm. so you can experience eating lots of different types of things. And then collectively you have an interest in learning how to cook those sorts of things. Totally. And also, I mean, for me, because like, we've had to pay a lot more attention to what's in food mm. i've generally come out of like childhood being quite interested in what's in food anyway and also as a from a science background it kind of does sometimes contribute to cooking like certain like certain you know certain vitamins certain you know, oil content water content how that kind of works for certain foods so like yeah there's a, a number of things i was lucky to experience i mean allergies are really lucky but the the time taken to look into food is something I take from that. Whereas, you mm. know, you go to, you know, I remember at uni, there were people whose parents were very nice and that they, they did all the cooking and there was, and you know, they never wanted to put the burden of cooking onto their kids, but I mean, their kids came to uni with no cooking experience. And so, but then they also didn't want to cook. They want, didn't want to learn how to cook, which I think is mental. But um, like if if you had the capacity to learn how to cook and didn't, I think that's a bit mental. I mean, sometimes if you you know if your family can't afford big lavish meals every dinner, or like you know to or doesn't have the the, the passed down know how to do all sorts of different things, and yeah, you might your palate might be limited to begin with. But um, yeah, if you don't, I don't know, if you if you have the means to learn how to cook and don't, I think that's just really I find that really strange personally because what it, it's just a great thing to be able to do. It's a really easy thing to do. It's a really easy thing to talk about, to make friends, to kind of, you know, to feed your family. Not as a, like a necessity thing, but just for, you know, the sheer, the sheer joy of it. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think some people are just not particularly interested, um, which I guess is fair enough, you know. They'll, they'll be interested oh, yeah, totally, in something yeah, else. To, um, oh, yeah, to each one's own. It's, uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe that's me being a, a snob again. I think it's... <laughs> well, if, you, if, it's, it's like if a, you are, then I am as well, though, because that... I completely agree i've always struggled a little bit with people who sort of in quotation marks can't cook or just like won't cook um i i don't i've never really got that uh because it's just i similar experience to ludo probably i mean i um my my mum growing up my mum did all the cooking um and it was pretty like you know it's like sort of uh pretty straightforward british sort of cuisine uh i say british but you know uh how can, how can i say so you know my mum would buy like a jar of like you know uncle ben's sauce and that would be you know maybe a cantonese sauce or like you know a chili that was a big one for weeknights so you just do some rice and then do the chicken and then or the the minced minced beef or something so that was one night um we'd have like a roast chicken one night a week um Spaghetti bolognese, just because again, it's a straightforward dish and it's a, a bit of a mainstay in you know, most British ho- households. I think is a, is a spag ball, um, and I mean, I never really took much interest in food, um, but I could always sort of cook uh, in the sense of like, I just don't think people have any excuse anymore because all you have to do is just whack on a YouTube video and you can even cook along to it. It like it, it couldn't be easier, you know what I mean? So when I first came to uni, although I hadn't really cooked before, I um I took to it fairly quickly, like because I realised all I needed to do was just whack out a, a recipe, 
and um you know uh just follow it along make sure i had all the ingredients and like you know i don't think i made like i made a few mistakes with cooking stuff but i always managed to make something edible and i mean i did i did really uh i really started to enjoy it um and i can't i can't cook loads of stuff but i think if someone puts like a recipe sheet in front of me and says cook this you know i think I've, i could do it um yeah. and that's kind of why i just there's a few people like i've, I've had it in the past where like um I've said to someone like, you know, I've, 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 you know, been set to go to someone's house or something and I'd be like, you know, and they'd be like, oh, well, I, I can't cook. So like, we'll just have to have beans on toast. And then I've, I've sort of been like, well, I mean, no, no, we don't. I was like, well, you know, I was like, I'll pick up some stuff on the way. I'll, and I'll come and cook for you, you know, and I'll make us something good. And they, they'll be like, no, no, don't worry about it. Uh, you know, that's okay. I don't want you to, uh, we'll just have beans on toast. And then my, my argument is always like, uh, I don't really want our fucking beans on toast. <laughs> rather like, you know, I'd, I'd rather take the very simple step of getting a couple of ingredients and making something delicious because something I've realized, because um, my, my sister's really into cooking. Um, she's been into cooking for ages, but uh, recently, over the past couple of years, she's really gotten into it. Like she really pushes herself with the, with the meals she makes. Um, like she makes really challenging stuff, um, and it's it's always delicious as well. Um, she's she's really uh throwing herself into like the cooking side of things. I think she she does want to be a she does want to go into chefing. Um, but something something that I learned from well I learned from you Ludo as well because I know obviously we we lived together for a year back at uni and uh, I get you know I many times got to eat, eat your delicious food uh, but the thing and I, always and I many times that, got to eat your delicious food I should add oh thank you I mean I can't really remember if I made much I only used to what did I used to fucking make paella uh, you, I could make a paella yeah, you, you made a good paella you made you made a good curry you made um what was that thing you made cowboy hash a classic mm -hmm. cowboy hash that gave me really really bad wind when I went to see that parliament gig <laughs> um yeah, but the thing is I found and that, that I learned from you and from like my sister and people who, who've cooked for me is that it's not it's not actually that difficult to make really nice food. So that's, again, I get that people aren't interested in cooking, but the, the bit that I can't get my head around is like, as easy as it is to say, let's just say beans on toast, as easy as it is to make like beans on toast or like as easy as it is to, to like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of all the junk or shit that students eat um even even as easy as it is to like make the effort to like order a takeaway you could really easily just make something really nice yourself so that's why i kind of i'm a bit critical of people who are like oh i can't cook i'm rubbish at cooking uh, you know it's like well no you're not you just won't cook i don't know yeah i think that that maybe comes from a culture of of not cooking do you know what i mean True. the you know just if we're like, like, I don't know why we we're not taught this kind of thing in school. To be honest, I mean, I had I had food tech for a couple. of years. I was going to say I had food tech as well. I was lucky yeah, I, I, I think school. I, on my food tech course, we literally what well, we learned to cook like three things. It was really, really like they were like, oh yeah, you know, we have to learn the principles of design when it comes to food. It's like, well, no, like there's going to be kids here who who don't get to eat home cooked food at home because their parents don't want to cook and obviously yeah. that's fair enough but like these are really useful skills to to equip them with uh when for when they grow up and uh, you know well i got yeah i got very lucky with our food set that the food tech course it was one of like i don't know if you guys had something similar but um like technology 
in terms of those lessons was sort of in a in a rotation between like there was food tech and then there was like things like graphic design woodwork and electronics we had this sort yeah. of interesting rotation same the year. Exa- exactly the same with mine yeah because i i never finished an electronics or woodwork project because i just hated it i think i think because i just hated the noise like of the, the sand and whatnot if i went back now i'd like to give it a go just because i've you know with my old technician job i kind of got a bit more confident with well i would say i got confident with breaking stuff that wasn't mine no it's seriously like being a technician not just gave me confidence in other tech stuff and also being interested in computers just you know just that is a disposition of mine but actually the confidence comes from taking apart something that's really quite expensive um but it's not mine so it's fine or like i used to take a lot of tech that was going to be binned from my old work and then just like because i just got it for free i can and if it doesn't break take it apart have a look or like you know take it apart and see if i could see what the problem is and if it's not like oh well i learned what that how that works now but um yeah we were lucky with our food tech because i think for the three years that it was we would have to have done it at some point so like year seven through nine like there was a year where it was themed around like baking and so like the, so that half the term was about the sort of something of the science of baking and so every week we had to try and you know bake something like it or like a, a cake or uh, a biscuit or a different cake or a different biscuit <laughs> and obviously i had the caveat of trying to make it gluten-free which obviously is hell yeah oh we did we did make a swiss roll which is actually really easy i've made about eight of those in my life but those those are those are great i think so uh i might make a swiss roll actually for christmas that might be a nice idea yeah man, but um that, that will be your ninth swiss roll i can't remember how many i've made is but uh, maybe yeah i don't know but it's, it's something which well, the only things I really took from that is like, and it's also because the recipe is again. I don't follow recipes. I'm just, I'm, I'm. We're blind to them for some reason. We just, we look at a recipe and go, oh, just change that. Can't be asked with that. No one really likes that. That's too, you know, whatever. Because there's so many things to accommodate. We just kind of end up changing it and then become kind of blind to be able to read recipes. But um, yeah, there, there was that baking element in our food tech course, and then I think in year seven and nine we had quite a variant, a variety of different things we could cook but it, yeah it, it, it all went on the idea of having a base of onions garlic oil salt and then adding like adding making sure meat's cooked through then adding a sauce to it so a lot of like sauce and like carb sort of based dishes but enough so you know that most things start with like a base of alliums oil or a base of alliums of fat a seasoning then you probably got a meat and a sauce throughout it plus a cooked carb that's great but even I mean, though in- that, that's that's bang on that's exactly what kids should be learning because it just means that they're yeah it's basic you know but at least it's just always a great thing to fall back on you know if they ever need to cook something i mean we had it we had again that opportunity to cook which was really fortunate although we did have one of the senior food tech teachers had a habit of if someone was doing something particularly dangerous it's like rather than just obviously like they, they jumped to their attention straight away going like that's burning or like so you know if someone's cut themselves or like do it, or someone mucking about is going that's actually really dangerous but what they would do is they would say like now everybody stop and so they'd stop everyone when this thing was happening when they wanted to say something but that wasn't helpful because people could be having things in the oven you know they could be having stuff which is like boiling over so it did it so I guess it was like stop, almost stop, not necessarily to pay attention to not do this, but it's almost like stop to embarrass that person as much as possible. Yeah. And kind of to, sh- to show how irate they were at this person, like 
chucking dough balls around the kitchen or something. Do you want to know? I mean, what, fair enough. Do you know, want to know what my food tech uh, curriculum uh, feature? Yeah, no, please, please, please do tell. It won't take long. We spent um, about five lessons learning how to properly wash our hands, <laughs> and then in the final lesson, uh, we were tested on. Uh, our, the test was we had to make a cup of tea and uh, cook our oven frozen pizza. <laughs> that's not that. that I mean, I'd, that's I'd, I'd have that as a combo. But... That's true. Wow. I thought you say that's that's tr- 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 tragic. It is, but, but no, it's you... also true. Yeah, it was fucking pathetic, and that was like they actually got away with teaching that as so-called food tech. A thought that occurred to me, actually, just thinking about different schools. Um, and Ludo, again, like, I don't know if I've kept sort of asking you about this a lot. And again, I don't know if you, you know, if, if you get a bit sick of talking about it. No. But because, um, but because if you've lived in quite a few places around the world, like, I'll just see if, I, like, obviously you were born in born in Italy. You've lived in Chester for two years. You've lived in Brussels for a little bit. You grew up in Amsterdam, like, in terms of your teenage years. Mm. And you spent a bit of time in Egypt, is that right? That is correct, yes. Is that all of them? Uh, oh, and obviously Birmingham, so, London, yeah. where you are now. Yeah, yeah, you've you've covered them all. Okay, yeah. Again, I'm not trying to like, um, I'm not, I'm not trying to sort of form an opinion on that. Again, <laughs> I know that I've probably asked you about it a lot. I don't know if you get like, it's your life. You know, you might get bored of people asking about that sort of unique element of it. No, not at all. But I, I love talking um, about myself. <laughs> all right, um, You're in the right place. <laughs> Well, no, um, Sam, I wouldn't have been sarcastic. I'm serious. Oh, fair enough, yeah. Well, I guess there is, like, one of those... It, when people say, like, I love talking about myself, I just think about all these sort of business blogs I've ended up reading, which is, like, people talking about, like, networking. And saying, Remember, the one thing that people love to talk about is themselves. <laughs> and it's just that kind of, like, oh, really, do I have to, like, do I have to appeal to that? And I was like, okay, fine. Yeah, but I think unfortunately. In reality, I, think, I think everyone... Yeah, I don't know. I mean... I think I've been more honest with myself lately about the size of my ego, and uh... oh, it's a it's a that's a hard conversation, particularly <laughs> how much it yeah how much it straddles the line because actually self hatred is not necessarily you hate is in like it's not because you've got a lot to hate, but it's actually because you didn't fulfil the expectations of your own inflated ego. Yeah. And so actually, the line is you. I think you told me that, but like the line is super super thin. Mm. But um, well, I was going to ask a couple of things, which is um. Firstly, um, because you would have had to, obviously, because you've lived in these places as a kid, mm. um, you would have had to have jumped around schools quite a bit. Yeah. Right? You would have had to have jumped. So I don't know. I I mean, th- this is me abstracting. So I, I don't know if you ever remember, like, having to adjust to sort of different curricula throughout schools, or even adjust to, like, different language learning. Do you, mean, did you, do you remember a sort of... Like every time you moved, having to make that jump, or is actually were there actually systems in place that sort of smooth over those transitions? No, it was quite in in different places. Yeah, different places felt very different. Different schools felt very different. So I I instantly remembered when I moved to when I moved to Chester, going from a, an international school, like a British international school, but one that was fairly informal, to. Uh, to an English school that was very, very strict. Uh, and so, like, I I had trouble adjusting to that. I wasn't used to being told to be quiet, particularly. Um, and I had, I think I had problems with authority at the beginning. Um, and then 
when I moved to Amsterdam after that, it was very weird to move somewhere so relaxed. So like, you know, we didn't have a uniform and, you know, teachers were allowed to be to, to, to say, oh, you can call me by my first name, things like that. Um, whereas, I mean, in my previous secondary school in Chester, uh, it was it was sir or miss, as it is in so many schools in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that was very different. And I mean, the learning at first was a lot less rigorous uh, in 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 Amsterdam. So I felt less challenged, I think. And, and then that led to, yeah, acting out, I think uh which which changed later on it's just a different pace basically um it's interesting you say that about when you 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 talk about acting out because i i was like good as gold throughout like most of my school mm. and then it's only now and particularly like possibly from sixth form onwards but particularly now is i have a problem with authority because possibly i didn't i didn't have my youth acting up mm-hmm. i had I now have my adulthood acting up and i haven't got anyone to defend me <laughs> other than myself or have that parents evening because well, it might be for the better because it's not, you know, so not like having to sort of toe the line. But it's it's interesting looking at that from because that's something I didn't even think about was the culture of schools. Because again, I don't know if like again, I don't know the exact ages you lived in all these places. But it's interesting that you remember those different cultures, and and you could even argue that cultures between schools in the same city might change. But let alone like oh, absolutely, um, yeah, but yeah. not only between it's gonna be, gonna be like, different, not only between different European countries, but also between. I mean, obviously, presumably in Egypt, were you at something like an international school? Yeah. So, yeah, you wouldn't have been, like, in the Egyptian education system per <laughs> se. Uh, um, yeah. But something else as well, which is, because you speak, again, you've probably heard you being referenced in the podcast quite ham-fistedly about being, like, you know, pretty proficient in a number of languages, you know, including including English, obviously, and Italian being your, like, first language. But... I guess something that Tom and I have often banged on about is like that, the interest in learning languages, but kind of feeling that uh, we, we might be missing something or like, we know, it seems like such an undertaking that we don't really know where to start or how to continue or like wanting the opportunity to utilize it, you know, without having that extra person there who can probably just interpret anyway. But is there something other than opportunity just sort of just by the mere being in different places that you found has helped you like essentially assimilate all these different languages in your head i know that's a bit of a big question but like, do, is there anything that you can think of that might be helpful for someone trying to be like a polyglot i think well what what helped me learn the languages was really kind of being immersed in them in various situations and so even though you know i've never i've never done a a dutch lesson or you know a dutch exercise writing exercise i could still write a few sentences in dutch because uh for example like in in the netherlands they don't dub any any american or british tv they just put subtitles on Uh, and so i would watch british tv and it would have uk sorry it would have dutch subtitles and so i mean just having those on really helps you absorb the language i think um the other thing with Dutch is uh, I, when I, growing up, I played rugby and it was in a Dutch team and it was, yeah, it was a local club. So all the kids, other kids spoke Dutch to each other. And even though I wasn't very good at responding in Dutch, I often just responded in English because they all understood English anyway. Um, 
I I still got it. I still picked it up. And so I think just if you can find ways not to compartmentalize it and just, you know, include it in your day-to-day life, like have, I mean, obviously this only counts past a certain point, you know, once, once you know the basics re- realistically as an adult. Um, but, you know, if you've got to the end of your Duolingo course or whatever, like just put the news on in whatever language you want to learn every day or like uh, try and read an article or uh, listen to a podcast in that language. And even if you don't understand most of what's being said, you will slowly pick it up, I think, from from just sheer repetition. Um, I... I don't think I can offer any more practical advice really because I think the languages that I've learned I've yeah I've just been lucky enough to pick up for the most part. I mean I have a, a decent level of French and Spanish but and that's from doing them at school but I mean the 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 thing with those is you know if you if you know one of the romance languages it's very very easy. Uh, you just have to know how to adapt that one language that you that you have to to the other systems well i guess that there might be grammatical points which are fairly similar between yeah. like french spanish and italian well not I mean, just grammatical also... like lexical and uh, oh yeah for yeah, sure phonological like everything i mean obviously there, there will be differences just because of like obviously the the like it's throughout time just the different ways or the different extents of isolation meant that or closed off elements or hostility meant that obviously communities would have been closed off to each other so languages develop more independently mm. but uh, yeah, there the, the, the are a lot more similar words possibly between like yeah French, Spanish, and Italian, Romanian as well. Mm. But like obviously, there's in something like Spanish, there's a lot more Arabic influence than possibly in the like the other Romance languages. Yeah, and possibly something like Italian. Possibly, uh, I'm just speculating it, but they probably kept a lot more Latin roots, whereas something like French might have taken more, um, possibly some more Norse words. Or like ditch some Latin words in favour of words that they came up with by themselves, depending on the condition that's you know that, that suited their local environment, that kind of thing. But yeah, I, I could have, from what little I investigated, Spanish and Italian, like, and even something in Italian where you can get rid of words like I and you because the verb conjugation conveys that information anyway. Yeah. So, but yeah, there are, and also sometimes where certain conjugations work is kind of similar. Is it like the the kind of having to conjugate for I, you, we, he, she, that kind of thing? They, the, the sort of the the, uh, the level of patterning is kind of similar across the languages. Not exactly the same suffixes, but the level of patterning, I think, mm. might be similar. Mm. Definitely. But um, I, don't, I think it's just that I think the trend, not the trend, but the, the general idea from what you know Tom and I have experienced and what you've sort of relaying there is that languages only really kind of click and kind of f- cement themselves in your head when there's some sort of context. I mean, Tom and I were talking about it in the in the context of I need food. I need to learn words to get food, otherwise I starve. Yeah. I need to learn the German again, the German for me so hungry. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Ich habe uh, hunger, which is quite easy. Yeah, uh, it's a nice easy one. The, the other one I was just going to say as well, because uh, this is just something that's kind of just occurred to me, was... Um, uh, something I would love to be able to do is get to a decent enough level in German where I can start reading like German novels, but in the original language. Um, I'd, I'd, that'd be an experience I'd like to try, um, just because 
I don't think I've read loads of books in translation, um, but I've read a few. But it always makes you think, like, you know, how much of the original, uh, I don't know, what, what, what you call it, the original music or the original sort of poetry gets lost in the shift yeah. to English. So that's something I might try and pick up because I know my dad's got a few uh, from when he was learning Spanish. He's got a few, like, dual texts. So it's like, mm -hmm. um, there's like a short story collection he's got and it's got, like, stuff by Hemingway in it. And uh, the way it works is on, on the left page, it's in English. And then on the right, it's the same in text in German. Uh, sorry, it, it, Spanish, rather. I think you can get them for German as well. So I might pick some of them up because uh, that'd be interesting to maybe just try and read some actual German literature, but read it in the original, um, in the original language. Because I was going to say, Ludo, I'm guessing that, like, so I know you're a big, uh, like, you're a big Italo Calvino fan. Mm. Um, would you have, did you, did you read that in, in the original Italian? Yeah, I did. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, that's yeah, just I, interesting, but, interesting to me because obviously you recommended "If on a Winter's Night a Traveler" to me, and I've read it and I love it. It's a brilliant, brilliant story. But there is that part of me that thinks, oh, you know, how how does it read in, um, you know, how does it read in the original language? Mm. Um, another one for me that was like a, a big one is um, a, a really incredible book I read, and it, it's originally in uh, is originally written in Spanish by. Uh, Roberto Bolaño, um, mm. 2666, uh, mm -hmm. or 2666. I'm not sure how you say it. Um, well, that's like an incredible or, book. Or 2666. Yeah, all that. <laughs> 2666. I'm pretty sure it's you say 2666 because it's, it's a year. Uh, I think that's how we say it. Uh, but anyway, that book was written in Spanish originally. So part of me does think like, you know, I wonder how if the books may be even better in the original language. I mean, I was going to say, Ludo, have you got any examples of of literature that you've read in both? Yeah, actually, I, I was I was thinking of that just as you were saying that. I think when I was a kid, my my mum was a big Roddy Doyle fan. Oh, nice! Uh, and she read she read Paddy Clark, ha ha ha, which is his book from nineteen ninety three, I think, that won the Booker Prize. And I, she, she gave it to me. I think I was too young to read it, but I still read it and enjoyed it. And I read it was in it Italian. A bit, a, because... Was it a bit, bl a bit blue? <laughs> it's not, it's not particularly blue. Like he's. It was uh, an adult book. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, but, but the main character's a kid. So I think, you know, it's about childhood and about loss of innocence and um, what it's like to, to grow up in, what it was like to grow up in, in Dublin in the sixties. Um. But um, yeah, then then as an adult, I I read it in English. I mean, you know, she would have read it in Italian, and so I would have read it in Italian. And um, I think, mm. you know, it, it, years ago now, obviously, so I don't I won't remember that well. But I think, you know, the the book has this kind of stream of consciousness style, uh, where the narrative is is nonlinear and and the sentences can get quite rambly and long, and uh, you know, it's all it's it's in the language of a 10 year old uh so uh, i think i think the translation captured that pretty well the uh, and and i suppose the important thing is to keep the spirit there you know if sure to keep to keep the writer's intention intact um but you know inevitably you're gonna you're gonna lose something uh, another another example i can think of actually is this um this german writer i really like called walter moers um and he writes really wacky 
fantasy novels, basically. He he sort of I guess he he might be the Terry Pratchett of Germany, something like that. Right. But um, he, a lot weirder, I would say. And I remember loving his books as a kid in Italian, uh, and the Italian translation having having like a real sense of humour to it. Um, but then I I was in a Waterstones, and and I found the English translations, and I was flicking through them, and they just weren't funny, in any way. Oh, that's interesting. So, uh, and so I don't know whether that was, you know, I, I don't know how much of the humor is in the originals um, was the, was the interesting there thing there. So, so, you know, is that, was that just a translator who decided to add a load of humor to, well, mm. to find the humor in the, in the books or was it an inept translator to English who failed <laughs> to uh, capture it to, yeah. to capture it or yeah. Or what was the original intention? So uh, the English I, translator went, well, it's a German book. There's probably not any jokes. It's not going to be funny. <laughs> I mean, it um, can't be. It's German. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so go figure. I mean, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure there are good tra- translators and, and bad translators. And uh, I, I think, I think it will be impossible to, to re- for it to be the same text. I guess have we talked about sorry, go on, have we talked about pathologic in that regard? Because I think one of the original barriers to entry for the original pathologic game was that um, the original translation from Russian was particularly bad. Yeah, and so I th- yeah, I they think had the, the, actual... the HD one, the one that I've played a bit of and that I intend to try my best to complete. Uh, yeah, that it got a bit of a second wind, I think, on Steam. So the HD re-release, I think they really cleaned up the translation, or they probably did a whole new one. Because yeah, um, they actually just got different people to do it because the first yeah. lot botched it up. Yeah, but, it, but I it, suppose it, the, the barrier there is r- rather than you know an artistic one. It sounds as if it's simply a kind of comprehension one there, where they've they've made the game incomprehensible. Yeah, <laughs> it just the tran the tran- From what I've heard, the English translation just wasn't fit for purpose. It was just you know it was a bit busted and. Uh, but the the trans I, uh, I mean I've only played through um, I mean the the game takes place over a number of days I think it takes place over like twelve days you have to like survive for I think I only played like two of the days but yeah the, it's all it's a lot of it's text based well nearly all of it's text based because uh, making it even creepier uh, and adding to the overall atmosphere of dread in the game um, characters text boxes don't correspond to what they say physically. So that's really bizarre. So like you'll speak to someone and they'll say a line of dialogue that's voiced. Well, that's kind of almost like a flavor line because then there'll just be a big box of text of what they say very much in traditional RPG style. Um, but it reads really well. It's just really, it's a really creepy game. It's got sort of like a really eldritch vibe yeah, to I, it. I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't get past the first day. It was too spoopy for me. But... Yeah. Some <laughs> people, suppose... some people do compare it to like, I mean, I've not read any, but, um, Quite a lot of people are comparing it to like uh, Dostoevsky and uh, Tolstoy and stuff. Like some people have really gone the whole hog, sort of saying how good the writing is. Um, well, supposedly that it is good. It's, um... I mean, I will attest it is good. I mean, the only thing with me is is that the game takes a lot of concentration, and um, well, you just you're basically terrified all the time. The game is essentially an anxiety simulator, and on top of that, the game wants you to pay attention to people um it's a it's a it's a great experience you'll you'll never play anything else like it but it's it's time consuming but i am going to try and finish it before i uh get a job 
because it's very much an unemployment game. I don't think I'll be playing it, you know, after getting in from work, put it that way. <laughs> well, it, it sounds like the, from what I've seen of Pathologic, again, the writing is very novel-like. And, it, and when you say about comparisons to Dostoevsky, Dostoevsky and Tolstoy, there is, from what I understand about Russian writing, is that it's not necessarily so, like, plot-driven in the same sense like Western European novels might be. That it's actually, like, the, the, the sort of stereotype of Russian novels being that there's so many characters that get bought in and they all kind of have to have almost equal treatment in terms of their like how well they're sort of described and how much they sort of say and are featured. Whereas like in possibly more conventional writing, you might go like, well, this cat, you know, these are the important characters. These are who we're focusing on. From from what little I understand, again, as with anything on this show, I've probably not actually encountered it. So I'm sort of cobbling pieces together. So this is probably a good time for Tom and or Ludo to be the deliberate contrarian and actually tell me some facts. <laughs> Actually, I'm not sure. I mean, I've actually don't, I don't think I've read any Russian literature. I've got yeah. uh, literally, literally like 30 centimeters from my head on my shelf. I've got um, I've got a copy of The Idiot, so I do want to read that because I've heard that's really good. But um, yeah, I've, uh, I've I've not actually read any Russian literature unless I've like read one short story or something. Uh, I, I mean, I've read I've read Daniel Harms, but like that's that's not really the same thing because his is so many short stories. Yeah, I'm. I have to say, I'm. I'm very, very bad on Russian literature. I don't really. Bit, know. Of, a, bit of a blind it's, spot. Oh, yeah, I'll tell you what's really another one I've got. Sorry, it. one I have got that. Uh, there's a podcast I listen to that I really like called Literary Friction, and um, one of the hosts on there, like one of their favorite books, is a, a Russian novel called The Master and the Margarita. That's from like the '90s, and it's by a guy Olga called. Kov. Yeah, that's that's the one. Also got that on my shelf, so I should probably try and give that a read because I've heard really good things about that. Yeah, I tried. Um, I've got I've got an Italian translation of that, and I couldn't get into it. But um, it is more effort for me to read in Italian, so maybe I just need to uh, to pick up an English copy. That's interesting, actually. Yeah, do you um, do you find that if you're going to read an Italian writer, will you just read it in Italian? Um, yeah, 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 definitely. And the follow like for most other stuff, will you read it? Will you do it? Maybe read in English. Well, I, I, you know, not out of principle. It's just, um, just easier for me because my, I definitely, you know, I've always been schooled in English and sure. my my degree is in English, and so I, I just, yeah, I have more of a more of a mastery of English than I do of of Italian. Uh, and but to be fair, I have, I guess... I have a, a, an absolute mastery of neither of them. I should add. <laughs> I guess that with the Italian though as well, it's it's with it being an Italian writer. I guess you figure it's like uh, you, you you can read Italian, so you might as well read it in the original language because you can. I'm guessing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. I mean, I I, I've, just... not, I've not really read much else in translation. I'm trying to think. Uh, I've read um, I read uh, Haruki Murakami's The Wind Up Bird Chronicle. Uh, Mm -hmm. years ago i read it when i was still in high school actually because my my drama teacher at year nine uh recommended it to me and um it's a solid recommendation i remember really enjoying it but again that's another interesting one with because it's a translation from the japanese again Mm. it's like how much do you maybe lose just because again with with italian french spanish german literature i guess it's like you know european languages uh i don't know how far removed the translations are from english but i think with Mm -hmm. something like japanese i think you really do have to translate a lot i suppose it comes into this idea of um what they call in video games localization 
Um, they might they might call it that in translation in general, actually. But like an example, and this blew my mind when I found out about it. So like, The Witcher Three, uh, mm. which is a, a brilliant game uh, by a great company called CG CD Projekt Red or Say uh, De Projekt Red, if that's how I'm properly pronouncing it. Uh, they're a Polish company um, based on the Polish novels uh, by is it Sapkowski? Yeah. Um, and the thing I didn't realize was that, well, the game's getting translated pretty much immediately from the original Polish because the game, you know, uh, it's for the English-speaking market because it's a worldwide thing and people love The Witcher 3. But one thing I watched was an interview with, like, loads of the staff and they were all chipping in on, like, the different localizations. And because it, it is, it's le- legitimately, it's not just translation, it's also localization. So the idea is that when characters talk, they will make like in if the game's in english they'll make like english references or they'll make mm. references to like english food or something so mm. when they translate it into a, another thing like maybe if they translate it into japanese they'll localize it as well so what they'll mean is that characters will like tell jokes or make references that only japanese people will get and i think that's really nice i think it's a really neat sort of um it's just a bit of that extra attention, I think, so that anyone playing the game will feel like the game was made in their language. Like, when I played The Witcher 3, I think when most people play it, I think most people don't know it's a Pol- probably wouldn't realise it's a Polish game. Um, and that's great. I mean, I just wonder sometimes if maybe translators do that with literature or, you know, I guess it depends on each individual book, like how many sort of... I suppose really, it's negotiating, you know, you know, someone who knows one language is going to have certain reference points. Well, it's going to tend to have certain reference points that don't exist in another language. And so it's probably about negotiating shared reference points or points of reference that, that correspond in in the same way. Well, also idiomatic than... language would have to be changed. Yeah, possibly. of course, of course. Because a, a direct translation wouldn't like... It's not like Raining Cats and Dogs has like an exact translation, but also that translation is always never taken literally. Mm, mm. It's like it's yeah. like the one I was saying, saying to you the other day, Sam. The one I re- uh, the, the podcast we, uh, before this we we recorded uh, a really there's a really great German phrase uh, that I came across when I was doing Duolingo, and it's uh, the the answer was practice makes perfect, um, but but looking at the German. It, it looked nothing like that. So I was like, well, I wonder what it means. And I broke it down. And the the exact German translation, I think, is like way better than Practice Makes Perfect. Um, and the, the German phrase is, it's something like, there is no master that is fallen from heaven. <laughs> um, and I just really like that phrase. I think yeah. it's a beautiful phrase. And it's just funny how you lose all of that in the Duolingo answer of, oh, Practice Makes Perfect. Um but yeah, it was proper like, uh, yeah, because it came up and said me- me- master uh, or maester or master. And it said, you know, uh, himmel, gefallen. So I was like, oh, okay. And then I sort of looked at it closer and I was like, oh, shit. But um, there's a load of German idioms that are, that are amazing sounding. But yeah, we've kind of, uh, the, the English version is so fucking reductive. <laughs> like... I mean, it must work the other way around just because we're not learning English as a second language. Yeah. Because True. then we might... We might look at the, like, you could look at something really boring in terms of like an English translation, but then in your head, you might go, practice makes perfect. But then you might, using your knowledge of English, be able to come up with, go, oh, it's kind of like saying, and then you would come up with something more colourful just because you've got the words at your disposal to come up with something more colourful. Whereas, like, yeah, like, sometimes when you're just learning a language to begin with, it has to be really cut and dry until, like, you've kind of got the creativity to 
use it otherwise. I'm thinking just because we are on, well, something like an hour, an hour and 11, this might be a good time to wrap up, if that's all right with everyone. Let's, let's yeah, say great. Say, I think I've said everything I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's one more thing nothing, I will try. Nothing and, more to add. There is one more thing I'll try and elicit from you. Um, have you enjoyed being a plot boy on this episode, Ludo? Uh, I've I've loved being covered in plop. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. You're we've enjoyed welcome. we've enjoyed having you and plopping you, and uh, you know you're uh, you'll you'll come back. I trust. Uh, if you'll have me, of course. Of course. Oh will. yeah, absolutely. I think it's uh we we don't want to we don't want to set a date because it's you know we don't know what's happening in the future. No, tell me now. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, he's got the man's got a busy yeah. schedule. Yeah, that's true, and that's well. I guess it's obvious because he's appeared once, and we've appeared every time. So that tells you. <laughs> well, this is all reflection. we've. This is all I've got. Well, I mean, this is all I've got. So yeah. Before I'll start, I'll start doing uh, podcasts just by me on my own. I'll do some solo plops, uh, and I'll do them twice a day, <laughs> every day. Uh, yeah, you've got to be regular when it comes to plops. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, Use use the editing I've taught you. Uh, that might be a good opportunity to practice. But um, let's let's call it because of time. But yeah, thank you, Ludo, for coming on. And uh, yeah, there'll be there'll be more episodes to come. Hopefully, possibly with Ludo, other guests as well, and the usual Tom and I just fucking chatting shit as per usual. 